All right, we started last week a new series called Do You Know My Name? And it is about the names of God in the Old Testament. That's our focus in this series. And it is an opportunity for us to not know more. I mean, this isn't the idea to know more information about God or more fun facts about the Old Testament or something. It's an opportunity to know God on a relational level, to grow in intimacy with Him. And we talked about this just a little bit last week, but ancient cultures, in ancient cultures, names were very important. They weren't chosen because they were cute-sounding or because your great-great-grandfather had this name. It wasn't normally like that. Uh, Most often, names were attached to people because of a significant event that had happened or because it, it connected with who they were in some meaningful way. Abra... Abram, father, Abraham, father of multitudes, um, the one who would have descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky. So I long to know God more and more deeply, more and more intimately, and since you're here, I assume that you do as well. So we're looking at these 25, well, we're not going to look at all 25 names, but there are roughly 25 different names uh, used for God in the Old Testament. We're looking at some of those. Now, we as Christians believe that the clearest image of God, the clearest uh, embodiment of who God is, is in the person of Jesus Christ. Um, He is Emmanuel. God came near. He is God in flesh, as we read in the Scripture reading this morning, opening church service, the one in whom God saw fit for all of His fullness to dwell in bodily form. And I ran across a blog post this week by a fellow named Kevin DeYoung um, that really I think he gets at what we're doing, and I thought it was a fascinating read. It's a little longish. It might take me a couple minutes to read this, but it made me think, so I'm going to share this with you. He said, The greatness of God is most clearly displayed in His Son, and the glory of the gospel is only made evident in His Son. That is why Jesus questioned His disciples in Matthew 16 is so important. Who do you say I am? The question is doubly crucial in our day because no one is as popular in the United States as Jesus. And not every Jesus is the real Jesus. There's the Republican Jesus who is against tax increases and activist judges. He is for family values and owning firearms. There's Democrat Jesus who's against Wall Street and Walmart for reducing our carbon footprint and printing money. There's therapist Jesus, who helps us cope with life's problems, heals our past, tells us how valuable we are and not to be so hard on ourselves. There's Starbucks Jesus, who drinks fair trade coffee, loves spiritual conversations, drives a hybrid, and goes to film festivals. I think he's from Austin. Um, There's open-minded Jesus. Maybe this one's from Austin. There's open-minded Jesus who loves everyone all the time, no matter what, except for people not as open-minded as you. Uh, There's touchdown Jesus who helps athletes run faster and jump higher than non-Christians and (laughs) determines the outcomes of Super Bowls. There's martyr Jesus, a good man who died a cruel death so we can feel sorry for him. There's gentle Jesus who was meek and mild with high cheekbones, flowing hair, walks around barefoot, wearing a sash, while looking very German. There's hippie Jesus, who teaches everyone to give peace a chance, imagines a world without religion, and helps us remember that, quote, all you need is love. 
There's yuppie Jesus who encourages us to reach our full potential, reach for the stars, and buy a boat. There's spirituality Jesus who hates religion, churches, pastors, priests, and doctrine, and would rather have people out in nature finding, quote, the God within while listening to ambiguously spiritual music. There's platitude Jesus, good for Christmas specials, greeting cards, and bad sermons, inspiring people to believe in themselves. There's revolutionary Jesus, who teaches us to rebel against the status quo, stick it to the man, and blame things on the quote-unquote system. There's Guru Jesus, a wise, inspirational teacher who believes in you and wants to help you find your center. There's Boyfriend Jesus, who wraps his arms around us as we sing about his intoxicating love in our secret place. There's Good Example Jesus, who shows you how to help people change the planet and become a better you. And then there's Jesus Christ, Son of the living God. Not just another prophet, not just another rabbi, not just another wonder worker. He was the one that they had been waiting for. The son of David and Abraham's chosen seed, the one to deliver us from captivity, the goal of the Mosaic law, Yahweh in the flesh, the one to establish God's reign and rule, the one to heal the sick, give sight to the blind, freedom to the prisoners, and proclaim good news to the poor, the Lamb of God who came to take away the sins of the world. This Jesus was the creator, came to earth and, the new cre- and began the new creation. He embodied the covenant, fulfilled the commandments, and reversed the curse. This Jesus is the Christ that God spoke of to the serpent, the Christ prefigured to Noah in the flood, the Christ promised to Abraham, the Christ prophesied through Balaam before the Moabites, the Christ guaranteed to Moses before he died, the Christ promised to David when he was a king. The Christ revealed to Isaiah as a suffering servant. The Christ predicted through the prophets and prepared for through John the Baptist. This Christ is not a reflection of our current mood or the projection of our own desires. He is our Lord and God. He is the Father's Son, Savior of the world, substitute for our sins, more loving, more holy, and more wonderfully terrifying than we ever thought possible. I like that. Made me think. And I think Kevin DeYoung really calls out, what if we're honest we do to Jesus sometimes? What we do with God sometimes, creating the Lord in our own image, according to what we would like to see or our need of the moment, creating perhaps versions Uh, of God, versions that serve us or serve our cause, our interests, our situations. And my hope and prayer in this series is we get back through the names of God. We get back to the one true living God, the one who is not something or someone of our creation as were the idols of the ancient world, but the creator God who loves us and who has rescued us, redeemed us, and revealed himself through Jesus. Now, last week, we considered the name of God that occurs in Genesis chapter 1, the first chapter of the Bible, and it was, as we talked about, Elohim, the most generic name uh, for God in the Bible. Uh, The one used in the Bible to speak about God, 
uh, the God of the Israelites, and the same word or name is used to speak about the gods of the Moabites and the gods of the Canaanites and the Jebusites and everyone else. Um, so, very generic name. Since the Elohim of Israel is the one true God, the living God, the creator, the source of all that is, there was a huge contrast between their worship of Elohim and the pagan nations' worship of their Elohim. Uh, one of those, uh, the biggest contrast would be just at face value that it was forbidden for Israelites to make graven images, right? And that was, that was how you worshipped pagan gods. I mean, that's what you did. You carved out of stone or wood or precious metals. You carved out your God and you bowed down before it. Israel was very different. Their Elohim would not be worshipped by graven images. And that would take us full circle back to Jesus, the only image of God. God in physical form is Jesus Christ when he came and was embodied in flesh. Remember that commandment from um, one of the Ten Commandments. From Exodus chapter 20, verses 4 and 5, thou, and this has to be King James. <laughs> I mean, I was reading this this week, and I'm like, I got to go with King James on this. It's one of the Ten Commandments. It just, thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them nor serve them. We're used to that, right? That's one of the Ten Commandments. Everybody knows that. But in all of the, the, the world surrounding Israel, that's crazy. I mean, that's how you worshipped. You did make graven images. So a huge contrast there between the Elohim and the worship of the Elohim of Israel and the Elohim of the pagan peoples. So Elohim, most generic name for God in the Bible. Um, now to the most personal most special name, which is Yahweh. In our Bibles, in English, when that name is translated, when we're reading in our NIVs or our English translations, when you see that name, it will say Lord in all small capital letters. Okay, Lord in small capital letters. That means it's Yahweh in the Hebrew. Um, it is a strange, it is a peculiar we're going to talk about some of this stuff tonight. It is an extraordinary name, and it also happens to be one of the most used names for God in the Old Testament. So first, the weird thing. Uh, we have these Hebrew manuscripts, and they don't, give us, they don't give us a lot of guidance in how to pronounce this name. We don't have access to the original pronunciation and all we have are those, those Hebrew letters, Y-H-W-H, that's it. So we're not 100% clear on how to say that. In the third century, there was a Christian leader uh, named Bishop Clement of Alexandria, and he pronounced it Yahweh, Yahweh, third century, so that's getting back there pretty far. A fellow named Theodoret of Cyprus came along about 100 years later, and said that the Samaritans pronounced that name Yahweh, with a B, Yahweh. Um, some third century manuscripts have been discovered uh, more recently in Egypt that confirm this Yahweh pronunciation, but still, we're not 100% sure. Um, two things 
make the pronunciation a mystery. Um, one, since it was God's personal name, and this name was considered so sacrosanct by Israel, so revered, that they didn't say it out loud. They didn't pronounce this name. Um, scribes who were copying the ancient scriptures, the ancient Tanakh, the Hebrew Old Testament, they regarded the name too holy to write completely. And so they would skip consonants. Today, if you get an email from an Orthodox Jew, they will put, if they're talking about God, they'll put G dash D. They won't, they'll leave the O out just because they don't want to put the whole name. They, they think that is, is taking the name too lightly. If you, um, so if you, if you were in a synagogue and someone was reading from the Tanakh and they came across that name, Yahweh, uh, which happened a lot, what did they do? Did they just skip it? No. They would take uh, the vowels from another word, Adonai, Lord, and they would put those vowels into Yahweh, and it would be Yahowah, which is where we get Jehovah. So anyway, uh, pretty peculiar stuff, but really, it's just the beginning um, with this name. The other thing that's weird and cool about this name is that it, it comes from the most basic verb in any language, to be, the be verb. Um, this would be the, the logos. You know, Jesus is called by John the logos, the word. This is kind of a, I think John is making a, making a reference to this. Um, God is the logos, the word, uh, the beaver behind everything else, the reality, the substance that holds all things together. So the name, it literally means I am. Beneath the, the molecules and the physical order of things, beneath the atomic level, beneath the subatomic level of quarks and quanta, Yahweh, I am. Before there was a carbon-based physical world, before there were planets and stars and creatures and, and the physical world as we know it, before there were gases and air, before the Big Bang, there was... There was. I am. Yahweh, the source of all things, the originator of all substance, the wellspring of life. And when I was working on my degree in philosophy, I always wondered about this. Um, because early on, studying the Greeks, the ancient Greeks, you read Aristotle and his tome, his greatest work, the metaphysics of Aristotle. And he talks in the metaphysics about his conception of God as the unmoved mover, the unmoved mover, that everything else for Aristotle, everything else in some sense is a reaction caused by this unmoved mover, everything else a footnote, everything else springing from that I am, that unmoved mover, the one who started it all. And look, Greek philosophers were familiar with the Hebrew faith. Um, in fact, Greek philosophers were enchanted with the monotheism of the Jews. They may have regarded the Jews primitive in many ways, but their monotheism, the elegance of one God instead of a pantheon of testy, irritable, temperamental gods, that was very interesting to the Greek philosophers. So I wonder, or I have wondered before, and I still wonder, was Aristotle thinking of the Hebrew God when he 
talked about the unmoved mover, the I am. Well, here's what's so powerful, so moving, so experiential about this name, Yahweh. While it seems so conceptual and philosophical and abstract, it is the most, it is the most intimate revelation from God to us about himself in the Old Testament. It's like, it's like Elohim is his last name. Johnson or Jackson or Smith, and Yahweh is his first name. Elohim, generic, Yahweh is only used for the God of Israel. It is his personal name. And his people understood the weight of this name. They knew that only in a personal relationship did you get to know this name. Did you get to call to this God by his name. And God shared this name with them. He wanted them to know him. Um, and that's why they took his name so seriously. And so the name is all over the place in the Old Testament. But there is one story that is the opening story for this name, and it is the one that shows us how special the name is. And it is that moment where God first revealed that name to people. So Moses. Moses, prince of Egypt, uh, raised in royalty. Aware, because his nursemaid happened to be his mom, right? Aware of his Hebrew roots, he couldn't, eventually as time went on, couldn't bear the suffering that his kinfolk were experiencing. And you remember he killed a taskmaster who was abusing a Hebrew slave. And then he fled. He took off into the desert. He took off into the wilderness. And he would live out there for four decades. He would marry a desert wandering woman named Zipporah. Uh, he would be taken into her father Jethro's household and begin working with, or for, and then with Jethro, Jethro in the business of, of herding sheep. Uh, the father in law Jethro was a high priest of Midian, uh, most likely. This, this is not attached to Yahweh. Uh, Jethro, high priest of Midian, would have uh, likely done um, cultic practices, not cultic, in, just cultic in the religious sense, right? Uh, practices, prayers, and sacrifices to various Elohim of that area. Uh, Moses, however, was at least somewhat aware at that point as he's wandering in the desert, somewhat aware of the traditional God of his people. It's here that I like to remind myself there was not an Old Testament. Okay. Well, Moses knew a lot about it. He knew those stories. That, no, Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible. I mean, God wrote it through him. There was no Bible. And what Moses would have known would have been stories from his childhood that his mom told him. About, the God, about Abraham and Sarah, about Noah, about the God of their ancestors. Um, so he didn't have a lot of content when it came to his God and to the God of his ancestors. Just some oral traditions and some stories that he might have heard earlier in life. Um, so until this moment in the life of Moses, and we're heading toward uh, the burning bush, all right? And until this moment, God is an abstract historical character that he has heard stories about. Exodus 3 is where it gets real <laughs> because he meets God. And it is really scary. You know the story. You know the burning bush. The bush that he sees. It's in the middle of nowhere. Um, 
this bur- a fire in the distance. He approaches it, and there's a bush on fire, and the bush is not burning out. It just keeps raging, this inferno on this, this poor little bush, or big bush. We don't know how big the bush was, right? Um, there he was, desert lands, tending the sheep of his father-in-law, far side of the desert, a place called Horeb, uh, and this encounter with the divine in the flames of, of this fire in this desert, extraordinary Extraordinary. The bush is speaking to him. Remember, this is holy ground. Take off your shoes. Um, and then the charge, you know, stunning for a guy who has escaped and, and been on the lamb for, for 40 years now. You're going to go back to Egypt to the superpower of the ancient world. You are going to confront and challenge Pharaoh, and you are going to be the liberator of my people, of your people too, Moses of the Hebrew people. So we'll pick it up in Exodus chapter 3, verses 13 to 15. Moses said to God, Suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, What is his name? What, what shall I tell them? Um, God said, So the Elohim of your forefathers has sent me to... Well, Okay, what's his name? God said to Moses, Yahweh, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. Verse 15, God also said to Moses, Say to the Israelites, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever. The name by which I am to be remembered from generation to generation. And of course, there's a lot more, and that's another sermon, but much of this has to do with Moses' own sense of inadequacy as well, and I'm not qualified to do this. And the, the, the Cliff Notes version is, it doesn't matter if you're qualified, God says. I, I've got this. <laughs> you just need to be faithful. You need to be obedient. You need to be faithful Everything else, I'll take care of it. Um, so it's at a time of, of crisis, the enslavement of God's people, the abuse of God's people, a time of misery, a time of hopelessness, uh, that God reveals this personal name, this covenant name, this forever generation-to-generation name, Yahweh, I am. And think about that in that context. I am just a statement of God saying, I'm present. I haven't gone anywhere. It's not that I was or I will be someday. I am in your present situation. I've not abandoned my people. I've not forgotten my people. I'm not absent. Um, now, they might not be able to change. To, they might not have been able to challenge Pharaoh. God says, I am They might not have been able to conjure up plagues. I am. They weren't able to challenge their captors and escape from slavery. I am. That's the name. What about you? Think about that. Um, is, Is your God present in your life? Something to think about. Is that how you think about God? Is that your relationship with God? Is he an I am 
God, or is he an I was God, back from flannel graph and Bible stories and stuff Grandma told you about? Or is he just something you read about in a book in the Bible? Um, is your God a generic Elohim sort of God, a God of, of the history books? Or is he a Yahweh sort of God, a God who is present? Well, we started out with that blog post from Kevin DeYoung about Jesus. And this is a name that directly brings us to Jesus in the New Testament. And probably outside of the trial and crucifixion of Jesus, I would rank this as the most tension-filled moment in the entire life of Jesus. Uh, And it's from the Gospel of John, chapter 8. And so we're going to come here, spoiler alert, um, I am, spoiler alert, I am and Jesus are not two different gods. They are the same, all right? John chapter 8, starting verse 12. Things really get tense here. When Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, now think about this, Jesus, the guy, they, he's from Nazareth over there. Um, he used to do some, some carpentry. Young guy, 30s early 30s. When Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. The Pharisees challenged him. Here you are, Appearing as your own witness, your testimony is not valid. I mean, you're saying this stuff about yourself? How is that valid? How does that give you credibility? Ugly confrontation is just getting started here. Opening salvo is occurring. The main point of contention is over the authority or lack of authority of Jesus. Um, Just who are you, Rabbi? to be making these claims about yourself. I am the light of the world. So the Pharisees ridicule. They challenge that authority. And then they move into pointing at his birth, which was pretty scandalous. Your mama got pregnant before she was married. That was a rumor up there in Nazareth. Mary was starting to show before she got married to Joseph. And so they ridicule his scandalous birth. They say in verse 19 to Jesus, they say, So Jesus, who is your father? Tell us that. Did I mention this is getting ugly? Um, (laughs) Jesus comes back, verse 44, and says, I know who your father is. Your father's the devil, Jesus says in verse 44. Things getting nastier and nastier in John 8. Their their reply to Jesus in verse 48. The Jews answered him, aren't we right? Now, this this would be a great question. This is the kind of question you hear in a presidential debate, right? Aren't we right in saying that you're a Samaritan and you're demon-possessed? Wouldn't that be a fair statement? You're demon-possessed? Wow. Wow. Now we're coming to the climactic end of the discussion. Remember, this whole fight is about the identity of Jesus. It's about the authority of Jesus. What right do you have to teach 
in the way you're teaching? What right do you have to make these extravagant claims about yourself? I am the light of the world. What right? Jesus replies in verse 54. If I glorify myself, you're right. My glory means nothing. My Father... whom you claim as your God, he's the one who glorifies me, though you do not know him. I know him. If I said I did not, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him and I keep his word. Your father, because they're claiming Abraham is our father, your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. They're like, wait a second. You're not yet 50 years old. And you have seen Abraham? They've got him, right? They think they've got him. Yeah, you're 50 years old. You've seen Abraham who lived centuries ago? Verse 58. I tell you the truth. Before Abraham was born, Yahweh... Before Abraham was born, I am. At this, they picked up stones to stone him. But Jesus hid himself, slipping away from the temple grounds. So here's Jesus, single man in his early 30s. Who am I? I'll tell you who I am. I'm your God. The Pharisees are incensed. I mean, this has been a a very hostile debate, discussion. Now it's actually boiling over into something physical as they pick up rocks and think about how they can kill him. So infuriated by the claim Jesus made to be not only the Son of God, but to be God, to be Yahweh, that in verse, that they're ready to kill him. They're ready to kill him. So this most intimate name of God revealed to Israel, beginning with Moses, and then we see it throughout the Old Testament, so sacred. This holiest of names is a name Jesus claims for himself. Let's pray. We're going to finish out tonight in prayer. Holy Yahweh, the great I Am, we come to you tonight with humble hearts. We honor you, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, as God, as the sovereign King of our hearts and lives. Yahweh, you are, I am. You are present in this place, you are present in this moment. And you are present in every moment of our lives because we belong to you. Lord, when we feel weak, when we feel as though we are being held in some sort of captivity, when we feel like we're not going to be able to endure any longer, and we're asking who is able to overcome there's your name. I am.
I am, Yahweh. Who is able to strengthen? Who is able to equip? Who is able to help us continue on when we feel overwhelmed? I am. Who is able to deliver us from death to life? There's that name again. I am. So we worship you with all that we are, Yahweh. We worship you in song and prayer and with our lives. Hear this prayer in your name. Amen. Let's be standing. Close with a song tonight.